Hello. Blog Talk Radio. Luxium Media Studios. I'm your show host, Dame Lillian Walker. Welcome to the Bottom Line Show Live. And today with us, we have the legendary Chris Robinson, best known for his role in General Hospital and The Bold and the Beautiful. Chris is originally from West Palm Beach, Florida, and he's sometimes credited as Christopher Robinson. He's an actor who played Rick Weber on General Hospital in, from the years of 1978 to 1986 where he was involved in a, um, well, we'll get into some other juicy stuff here in a minute, but he had that role, and immediately thereafter he was also on Another World in 1987, where he played the role of Jason Frame. And he was reunited with Denise Alexander, who played Leslie on General Hospital. Later he appeared on another soap opera, The Bold and the Beautiful, as Jack Hamilton, and joining in the early 1990s and leaving after three years. He last appeared in this part in 2005, and he has done many, many other things. And rather than talk about him, I think it's better that we talk with him. So, Chris, welcome to the Bottom Line Show Live. I thank you very much. My pleasure. So, Jack, before uh, I'm sorry, Chris, before we get into the nitty gritty of the bottom line of your secrets to success, why don't you tell our audience and our listeners a little bit about where you grew up and. Uh, and so forth, and what, where you grew up. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, uh, at least at the time it was the middle of nowhere, just outside of Fort Lauderdale. And um, I lived in, amongst the pine trees and uh, alligators down at the local river that I would go fishing at. So I grew up in swamps and high pine forest where there were very few people, and, uh, but it was close to Fort Lauderdale. Wonderful. And did you come from a small or a large family? Very small. My my grandparents actually raised me, and uh, I have a brother who lives in Florida right now. In fact, that uh, we had the same father, but uh, my grandparents raised me all of my time as a youth in Florida, and they were as good as any mother and father could be. They were sweet, great, beautiful people. So you grew up with a, a, a basically an older generation. Uh, I would imagine. Did you always find it easy to relate to um, older folks and uh, have less of an issue with the difference in generations? I, you know, I, I don't think so because when you go to school, you're around people your age, and mm-hmm. I was in the Cub Scouts, so I had uh, relationships with kids in the Scout. Thing that I was very heavily involved in for years. And, you know, you, you meet the younger mothers uh, and the younger fathers. So I, I, I never found that as any kind of obstacle. Okay. And so uh, when did you, you know, first have a love for acting, and how did that come about? I actually, believe it or not, was in the fifth grade. 
and the teacher wanted somebody to do a little skit on Christopher Columbus. And my hand went up. I'd never done that before. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. So um, I became Christopher Columbus, and I had three tables in a row, the Nina, the Pina, and the Santa Maria, and they were my three ships. And it was so fun dramatizing something, becoming another human being, and in this case a very historically great human being, contrary to what some people may think today. Um, and it was very special. I, I enjoyed it. I loved it. I said, gee, that's fun. And that was the fifth grade. In the sixth grade, I was at a different elementary school, and the teacher again said, um, gee, we need to uh, do a little thing on William Tell. So, of course, I raised my hand, and I got to play William Tell. And I actually uh, took a subject, another class member, and I said, here, put this apple on your head. I'm going to shoot it off with a bow and arrow. And I literally had a bow and arrow. But I pushed him out the door so the class couldn't see him. I then put the arrow to my bow and fired an arrow way out into the schoolyard. Now, of course, today mm -hmm. I would probably be put in shackles and arrested. But uh, then, of course, the, my classmate came running in with the, uh, an apple, another apple, with a different arrow in it. And, uh, again, it was so fun. And that, that was, this was my idea. Because if you're going to dramatize something, you might as well dramatize it so that it has effect and means something more. Um, as a result, it was fun. It was great. So I figured, gee, if I like it that much, I guess that's what I'll do. I'll be an actor. But I never pursued it again until my senior year in high school because I had always just assumed, well, I want to be an actor. I should study other things. And uh, I loved school. School at that time was very exciting. The teachers were fantastic. They, they taught the subjects from a positive, uh, strong viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And um, I decided if I'm going to be an actor, that doesn't require much education. So I majored in four subjects, four different solids in high school. Um, I also had to work the last two years of my high school, so I worked 43 hours a week, which, again, today would be frowned on. They wouldn't allow me to do it, but I had moved to California since I had wanted to be an actor. That was the end of the 10th grade. I moved to California, and I was, in essence, on my own. So I pumped gas 43 hours a week, carried four solids, and graduated second in my class from Hollywood High. Um, but I concentrated on all these. I had a math solid. I had a foreign language solid. I had a science solid. And uh, I can't even at this point even remember what the fourth one was. But I loved learning, and learning was great to me. So I, I thought, well, okay, now I'm, in the, I'm a senior in high school, and I haven't pursued acting in all these years. I just love to learn about life and learn about things. So I decided I better get into a drama class at Hollywood High, which they had. And that solidified it. I got to be in an actual play for the first time in my life at Hollywood High, and that sealed my fate to become an actor. Wow. So let me ask you this. Um, were you the type of child before you got into acting, were you more of a quiet, quiet introverted type? that found an escape in being able to be portraying somebody else and be open, or were you already outgoing and gregarious prior to, you know, prior to your acting? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, 
I think somebody else that knew me would probably be more descriptive and more honest and objective. I don't think I was either introspective or the other way. I, I, I mean, I had to work. I had to sit and pump gas till 11 o'clock every night, mm-hmm. and I worked 10 hours on Saturday uh, to make up my hours. So I had a, a, and you know, you deal with people. That's when there was no self-serve gas. You had a man that came out, me. And I pumped gas, I cleaned their windshield, I checked their oil, and at night I cleaned the men's room and the girls' room. Uh, all part of my duties. So you you deal with life openly. Uh, I didn't run from anything, and I didn't run to anything. It's uh, It was life. When you learn to support yourself when you're 15 years old, uh, it's a different situation. So it sounds like obviously you had a pretty good work ethic, and interestingly enough, uh, your love for learning, which I think a lot of people would not correlate the requirement if you're going to go into acting, there's a lot of research that's oftentimes done, and you have to learn a lot about whatever the character and the time period and the different nuances. There's actually quite a bit of learning and studying that's involved in any kind of major acting endeavor, so it sounds like you were really predisposed for this. Well, you know, when I decided to to take all these majors, it was half of it was for the distant future, learning everything I could about all different aspects and parts of life. And so that's exciting. I mean, I loved history. Um, I loved, uh, I I speak speak fairly fluent Spanish today. I've, I've, uh, I did a film in Spain where I was the only English speaking person and the whole crew was uh, totally Spanish, and I had to converse the entire time with the crew, with the director, because he spoke almost no English at all, and wow. it was fun. But I, I learned the language in, in high school. So, what was your first big break then? Here you go from pumping gas. What was your next step? And, and well, what, was that? what did you feel like? I'm, I'm ready to graduate from high school, and uh, where do I go? Pasadena Playhouse. And I can't remember who it was that told me, well, gee, Los Angeles City College has a really great theater arts department. And I had no funds at the end of high school. I I was one of, I think, three people at Hollywood High that passed the NROTC um, uh, intelligence program. They gave this test, NROTC. I passed it. I went down and I passed my physical and I passed uh, psychological and I was going to get a, an NROTC scholarship to almost any con- any college in the country that had an NROTC program, Naval. And then I had my last interview and they asked me what I was going to do as an adult. And guess what I told them? <laughs> I was going to be an actor. And I lost my scholarship. They wanted somebody. Oh, who, oh yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I could. I, I wanted to be a, a fighter pilot. Is what I wanted to do. But that was going to be temporary because I was definitely going to go into acting right after my four years in the Navy. And I think it was four years at the, or maybe it was three years at the time after you graduated from college and, and did their program through college. Uh, and that's not what they wanted. But they wanted to know me, and I had to tell them me. I couldn't. Say I was another human being. This is what I believed in. This is what I wanted to do. So I lost my scholarship, um, but that would have 
meant going to some big university like UCLA or USC. And I kept hearing these things that Los Angeles City College has the best theater arts department in the United States. So I went down, I registered, I paid the giant, giant fee of $6.50 for my first semester. (laughs) That $6.50 covered my gym equipment, covered entry to every football game, baseball game, and, of course, the dramas that were put on the theater arts department. Uh, I mean, I had to work for months to make that $6.50. And I'm glad people realized that I I enjoy life. I like to make fun of everything. Um, But literally, I started in that. And let me tell you, the first day in class, we had a one of the gifted human beings that gives me goose pimples today that I talk about was Jerry Blunt. And he stood up in front of the class and he said, there's 247 of you people in here. I think that was the number. Um, at the end of two years, there will be seven left. Wow. I, I only tell you this because in this department, we teach you life and what you're going to experience after you leave. And if you look at the actors that can actually support themselves and make a living, that's how hard we'll put you through this school because we want to train you for life in reality, not just to get some kind of degree. And I literally had class from 8 in the morning till 5. We had a two-hour break till 7, and I would come in from 7 to 10, but that 10 o'clock would run into 11 o'clock or midnight. We, that's the kind of schooling this theater arts department taught. Uh, they did six plays a semester. They didn't even let you do acting for the first semester. You had to do history of the theater. You had to work on the sets, either in the uh, set department and build scenery, or you had to work in the wardrobe department and do wardrobe. You got to do pantomime, pantomime, because that's part of acting. And it was as great as anybody ever told me. The, there's another teacher I had, Alice Parishon, uh, who was my pantomime teacher. Um, I also learned to direct. They had a directing class, but I spent one year building sets. And that was from 2 to 5, you built sets. From 5 to 7, you got a great dinner break. 7 o'clock, you came back and you built sets till 10, 11. And I have to tell you, we went to school on weekends, Saturday and Sunday, all day Saturday, Saturday night. Sunday was the only day we had off in seven days. And uh, I went back there a few years ago for some kind of play or something. They invited me, and I went back. And and right now, uh, this is several years ago, they told me they only did one play a semester. No students got to direct. Uh, and you only put on one play with a, a teacher as a director. Well, what happened to their directing classes? Um, I learned more about directing from my directing teacher at City College. Than, I mean, either, I had some brilliant teachers. They were great people, good human beings. They never talked about other things other than their subject and what they wanted you to learn the history of the theater, the how to do makeup. I had a makeup class. In fact, that gave me my first break in films. I had done two years. Makeup class? 
makeup class was what gave me my first, first break in films. I'd gone to school wow. for two years, and uh, I was finally able to do plays and actually star in plays the last, the second year. And, um, well, what am I going to do? So I got a job at the Santa Fe Railroad. Uh, a friend of mine had ins there and said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll get you as a file clerk. It's, it's Santa Fe Railroad. It's, take it. So I went down, did the interview, and uh, I was a file clerk at Santa Fe in the summer. And um, I did something I shouldn't do. I found out that you got a coffee break in the afternoon, and then you left at 5 o'clock. And they put me in a department, and in three days, I had caught all the file work up to date that had not been up to date for years. And they looked at me and said, would you like to be promoted to senior file clerk? And I've only been here three days. I said, yeah, but you, you've done all this stuff. You've, 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 you, I said, yeah, that's why I left at 4.45. I decided not to take my coffee break because I don't drink coffee anyway. So I went home early. Well, you really can't do that. I said, well, I'm not going to sit there and do nothing. No, you're now senior file clerk. So wow. for two more days, I worked as senior file clerk, and I couldn't stand to be without acting. And um, I said, I'm going to have to go to City College again. I've got to do more plays and find an agent. So mm-hmm. I gave them my resignation, which they were not real pleased with. And I went back to City College and worked all day, all night, and decided this time I, I've got a play that huh, kind of stupid on my part at the time. I was doing Henry Higgins in Pygmalion, which is an English, older English-type gentleman, and here I am, 19 years old. But I wow. played the lead in that, and I invited every agent in Hollywood. And only oh. one agent bothered to show up, a man by the name of Byron Griffith. And uh, wow. he left after the first act. And I called him the next day, and I said, well, what did you think? And he said, well, how can I, you're 19 years old. I, I mean, you, yeah, you played a, an English, soft-spoken, you know, very dignified Englishman. That, that, that's not, you're 19 years old, you're a kid. And I said, okay, all right, uh, please keep me in mind. I think I'm going to do another play this semester. And then I had an idea. I had learned to do makeup at Los Angeles City College. That's another whole semester to do the makeup. And what I loved to do was monsters and uh, scars and uh, really configure the face in interesting ways. So I had this idea, hmm, I'm going to do a horror makeup, and I'm going to call the top horror film directors, producers, and say, look, if I spend four hours doing a makeup, will you give me 30 seconds to walk, walk in your shop and show you what I did? And the very first one that saw me was Gene and Roger Corman. And Roger Corman, of course, was known for horror films for years. And I walked in their office as a ghoul, and I kind of dripped blood in different places I shouldn't have. But they uh, said, can you do a film for us in uh, 30 days and build a monster for it? Well, it had scene shop, and I literally went back to City College and built the monster in Scene Shop for a total of wow. $27 and something. It cost the plywood and the other stuff. I got all kinds of stuff free, and I did the labor. And I created, I, they wanted me to make up the monster. They didn't know what monster they wanted in the Beast from the Haunted Cave. So I went to the Hollywood Public Library, and I looked up insects, and I found the wingless hanging fly. 
okay, I'm going to make a wingless hanging fly that due to radiation became giant. And I literally mm-hmm. created this. And uh, as I'm leaving town to go to South Dakota to film it, I called the agent, the one and only agent that had taken the time to come down and look. And I said, Byron, I, I won't be here for a month. i got to go do this film in South Dakota. And he looked at me and, oh, really? So it made him think that if, if, if I was going to do it, maybe he should really get interested in seeing what I can do. I'd go, I'd do the film, uh, enjoyed it very, very much. In fact, it was a well-directed film for a, a low-budget science fiction film. I did all the makeup, all the special effects, and I made more than the actors made. But I said, look, wow. you've got to get a Screen Actors Guild card. Well, you're, you're doing a monster. I said, I'm sorry. But if I'm going to do a monster, you're going to pay me this amount of money, and you would probably die at the amount if I told you now what it was, but it was very small. <laughs> uh, I, I said, look, I have to have my SAG card. So they agreed to give me a letter to SAG saying, yes, he played the lead. Well, I was the beast of the haunted cave. You never saw my face, but you saw this giant wingless hanging fly that I was inside this creature, you know, uh, killing people and webbing them in, my, in a web. Um, so when I came back, there was another producer at the same studio uh, who was doing a, a, a juvenile delinquent film called The Diary of a High School Bride. So Byron actually got me an interview, and I went in and read, and I got to play the heavy. In fact, the, the director, Bert Topper, said, uh, you know, there, there's the hero and there's the bad guy. You can do either one, but the better part's the bad guy. And I said, of course it is. He's great. <laughs> the good guy is just, hi, ho-hum, yes, uh-huh, I'm a good student, and so forth. The bad guy's got problems. Bad, bad guys, would you like to do the bad guy? And I said, absolutely, star billing. He said, yeah, that's fine, star billing, okay. So that's how I got in, and that's how I started. So basically you're, you're, you created an opportunity for yourself. You saw that you liked doing makeup, and you you created the opportunity by calling uh, Roger Corman, who you said was known for horror films. You were able to reach him and get 30 seconds of his time to show you show him what you could do, and right. and the rest is history. That that created the opening, but you really created the opening by following your inspiration. You had the idea of you you know you enjoyed doing the makeup and the monsters and so forth, and so you're like, well, you had that inspiration to do that, and that was the crack that you needed to get in. Yeah, I I mean, um, I could tell you that even a year later, I did a pilot, and I was one of the stars of the pilot, and I'd do the pilot for six days, and on the seventh day, I was back in the gas station pumping gas, because you you have to take care of yourself. Everybody has to be self-sufficient, and unfortunately our society, our government, uh, people want to be helped every step of the way. If you find who you are and your independence at a young age, you can do almost anything, but you have to believe in you. You have to believe in what you can produce, what you can create, and learn and not think that you know more than anybody else. The more you sit quietly and listen to other people, the more you grow because you learn from them. You may learn what not to do. You may learn something that you disagree with. But if you go around talking about yourself all the time, what good does that do you? 
Wow. And so when you when you manage to get in now and you're now starting to work with Roger Corman, it sounds like then you had people who were coming alongside you. They recognized your talent and your work ethic, and it sounded like they started to help you also. So so what was that progression like that then ultimately, you know, how it led you to General Hospital? All right. Uh, first of all, uh, let me say that Gene Corman, the brother of Roger Corman, was uh, the actual producer, direct, not director, but producer of, of The Beast from the Haunted Cave. Um, I, I went from Diary of a High School Bride. I guess I got known as a ver- very good bad guy from a low, independent American international AIP film. And somehow uh, Columbia Studios heard about it or saw it or something, and uh, Dick Clark was doing a film called, oh, what was that called? Gee, I, can't even, I can't remember now. But it was Dick Clark's, I think, first film. And the heavy was the guy that beat up Dick Clark. And guess who did the part? I got to beat up Dick Clark, who was, you know, the teenage <laughs> sensation from the Dick Clark show. Um, wow. And it, it just went from there, from... That was a Columbia picture, and then Alan Ladd was doing 13 West Street. And guess who played the punk in the classroom that uh, got everybody upset and got in trouble with Alan Ladd and me? Um, so I, I began to be known as a bad guy. Uh, in fact, on 12 O'Clock High, years later when I was doing the series, Bruce Dern was... Uh, um, the bad guy on a 12 o'clock high segment, and I, I'm the good guy. I'm, I'm the Sandy Kamansky tech sergeant, uh, uh, flight engineer, top turret gunner, and we were riding home in the, the vehicle from the location at the airport, and Bruce Dern was the bad guy. I'm Sandy Kamansky, good guy. And Bruce turned to me. He had not seen all these other things I'd done, and he said, you could never play a bad guy, could you? And I said, that's how I started <laughs> was playing bad guys, so that uh, you, you remember the fun things in life. Mm-hmm. Through through this process, did you ever have a point in time where you hit, you know, you had a huge challenge or you hit uh, an enormous obstacle that looked that was dire in nature that you thought, wow, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? Did you ever have anything, you know, like, like that? that? You mean in acting or in life itself? Well, in in your life as you're moving forward and you're you're progressing in your career, did you have any, you know, either a death or an accident or anything that was just, you know, shook you to your core? No, I I, I guess I did I did some what most people would say are really stupid things. I uh, I, I didn't go to Hollywood parties. I went to one or two parties and they were passing joints around and doing stuff. And I said, no, thank you. No, I don't do that. I don't. I don't drink. Well, you know, when you have to put yourself through high school, how can you drink in high school or go out and party when you're working 43 hours a week to pay the rent where you're living and to study four solids in high school? Yeah. Uh, you don't. You have to be sober. And most you're people conscious. in life, yeah. If you're not sober, all you do is escape. You run. You hide. So after a couple of Hollywood parties and everybody passing up joints and, and sitting around getting drunk, I said, no, this is not really for me. So I grew up in Hollywood, but I, I didn't like that negativity, that that uh, 
you know, I'm an actor because I want to be worshipped. I'm an actor. I want to be a star so I can find self-esteem that I haven't found in myself. So my weekends were spent anywhere but Los Angeles. They were not at parties. They were traveling to Solvang to, to see Danish and, and look at the culture there, to Santa Barbara, to Mexico, to, you know, wherever I could go to be with real people that didn't need drugs or alcohol to be happy. So I'm, 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 that's the beginning of a story that if you might want to go into, we'll keep going. Well, and you know, that's that's very interesting because I think a lot of people would think in, in your industry that you need to, you know, be schmoozing and connecting and networking with a lot of people at those Hollywood parties. But you clearly, there's two things that really stand out to me. First of all, you were whole and in integrity with yourself. So because you were in a place of integrity with yourself, you knew you knew what you wanted to do and you knew how you wanted to obtain it. You didn't need, uh, the pursuit of acting wasn't an ego stroke for you. It was an expression of your passion. And so because it wasn't an egoic uh, type pursuit, it was more an artistic expression that needed to come through. You were centered. You also didn't have to run with, with the crowd. You could, you know, you could you could go in the opposite direction. I mean, I've heard many, many uh, of our guests say that, you know, they didn't do what everybody else did. They kind of blazed their own trail and figured out their own way how to get there and have done monumentally, you know, well, and the rest is history. Now we see them like yourself who, with, you know, award-winning credits to their to their name, but you know, again, that's why we do the Secrets to Success series is to unveil and to reveal these things. So I think that's I very learned, interesting. That you... I learned in high school from my best friend was from Estonia, and uh, he was a little older than I was, and, and I'd go over to his house and um, the, the, what little free time I had in high school, working those hours and trying to get the best grades I could. Um, his sister was married to an older Estonian fellow, and they had fled. I mean, I heard stories about, uh, you think the Germans were bad? Uh, when the Russians came in and took over Estonia, it was much worse than the Germans even. And his sister's husband would sit there on a weekend. If I was there on a Sunday and we were going someplace, and I went by Pete's house, and we're getting ready to take off for the day, this young man, probably 30 years old, would be sitting at a table drinking. And uh, here he had fled Estonia, come over, gotten an education, and was doing a job and making good money. But he also opened up and said something that I never forgot. If you do anything you don't love, you won't be happy. And that's why he drank on the weekends. Fled Russian communism, came to the United States, got an education, learned English, and was making very good money in a field, in a profession that he was not happy at. So he spent Saturday and Sunday drinking. And if you're not happy, why do anything in life? Do, Do something. Find what makes you happy. It's real simple. Real simple. Some people have trouble finding that. Well, then you look in themselves a little bit too and find out well why what 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 but again people have the influence of mother or father or grandmother or grandfather or the people that raised them as a child 
And if they don't have that, that's true. It makes it much more difficult for them. Well, you know, and you bring out, I think, a very, very uh, valid and a very critical point that no matter what, we all pay the price. So in your friend's, uh, you know, this Estonian that you're talking about, he, he paid a very heavy life price for doing something that he truly did not have a passion for, that he did not love. He was making great money and miserable. Mm-hmm. That is a, a really high price to pay in my book and obviously in your book too. Or You know, but, but, but sometimes people can't even wake up to that. And yeah. I'll give you another example of a person, an actress. Well, she was at City College, and I did a scene with her once, so you have to practice. And, and a very, very pretty girl, her name was Felicia, and she had fled Nazi Germany. Her parents were Jewish, and she had seen her mother dragged from her in Germany and never came back. Oh. And she was four years old at the time, I think four years old. I, 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 you know, I, I can't remember because it was Felicia's life story. But I found these things out when I'm studying with her for a scene. And I have to tell you something really tragic. She escaped communism. She escaped her mother's execution. She came to the United States. She went to high school. She was now a very pretty blonde girl trying to be an actress, but she was bored, not happy. It it was like, what is wrong with you? You do that. You have that in your life. And you can't. And you want to be an actress, and yet all you want to do is talk about why you're unhappy. What are you unhappy about? You're here. You've got a life. You're that attractive. Right. And and I mean, that's how much she wanted to study the scene. It was like she would rather talk about, I'm really unhappy, and I don't know really what I want to do. Maybe, yeah, if I'm an actress, maybe that'll make me happy. I mean. People can be given everything and not know how to accept it. People can be given everything and it ruins them. People can be given nothing and they realize that they have to make it themselves. Wow. Yeah, so it's interesting because she escaped what we would all tend to agree is, you know, the horror of hell, getting out of Germany, witnessing your mother being, you know, literally ripped away from you and, and, uh, you know, she barely made it out with her own life, and here she is now free to really do anything she could ever possibly want, and she's still held back by the past, mm-hmm. really. She's Bored. A, she's a prisoner of the past. Mm-hmm. She was a, a prisoner of herself. And mm-hmm. wouldn't you agree that most of us, we all have things that have happened in our childhood and our past that we could probably use as a reason to dwell in that mm-hmm. in that realm, but the reality is, uh, I see with you, with you what you did was you knew what you wanted and you created, you started off by creating those opportunities. I thought, wow, what a great idea. You know, you're playing a part in Pygmalion and so you invite all the different agents and, you know, most people would just invite their friends, but you had the insight to invite, you know, the people who could obviously further your career. And that's something anybody can do right now and whatever it is that they do. Think of people that are in that type of position who are looking for talent like yourself to cast and to employ in projects that they've got going. 
I mean, you know, you're bringing back the past to me. So if you want to keep going, I can keep going. You tell yes, me. Yes. So yeah. So so from that point forward. So now you're you've you've gotten in with Corman. So now how did you propel forward? Uh, I mean, you have a very extensive. Uh, list of credits to your name. I mean, it would take a little while for us to read all of these off, so I'm going to put a link in the show description so that our listeners can see that you know you have a, a, an incredible body of work, and you even have a couple of nominations. You had the prom- Most Promising New Star Award and also an Outstanding Villain, so you have... Uh, you know, quite a, a fair amount of credits to your name. So how did you make it into General Hospital? What was that like? Um, well, I, I have to give you a preamble because General Hospital was the last thing I really thought about doing. I uh, I made a big mistake in, in my career. I made the same mistake over and over and over, but it's because I didn't enjoy falsehood. I didn't enjoy glitter. I didn't enjoy drinking or drugs, so I would escape every weekend. But as I became more known, and I got a contract at Universal and I was doing uh, guest stars in Wagon Train and and, uh, The Virginian and Alfred Hitchcock, I did three Alfred Hitchcocks. Uh, You know, I, 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 I never went to the parties, I never did these things, but as I became more successful, I said, I'm tired of going to Solvang in Santa Barbara. I'm going to live where I really love. I'm going to live in Florida. So I literally, I do an arrest and trial, which was a 90-minute show. I did two of those. I don't know if I did three. I can't remember because I'd go from one show to another, but I'd have two weeks off in between, and I'd fly back to Florida, and I I would enjoy myself um, being with real people, uh, people that didn't know I was an actor even, uh, going fishing, in the Everglades, and my grandparents were there. I, I bought them their first color TV set. Like I never even watched TV till I started doing TV shows, and <laughs> I had finally bought a TV for myself to so I could watch myself on film. Um, but I, I, how can you have a career in Hollywood when you escape it every day? So that was a big mistake to me, and I would go back and do that, and then. Um, uh, Quinn Martin started hiring me for uh, leads on The Fugitive and uh, uh, Canon and uh, Streets of San Francisco and all the shows that Quinn Martin did. And I'd literally go home to Florida. I just, uh, I, I, I want reality. I want nature, which is why I'm living in Arizona today, which is the, the last mistake I've made. But I'd go back to Florida and I'd do these things. And I was out, I, I even bought a fishing boat and had a, charter fishing boat because I, I love to fish and I'm out on the boat one day and I get a call through my mobile phone through the uh, uh, CB radio that Quinn Martin wanted to know if I would star in uh, Total Hawk High uh, and here I am out fishing in the Gulf Stream in Florida and I said well yeah yeah of course but it, that makes it impossible for you if you don't socialize with Hollywood if you don't stay there I dated an actress that uh, was Fabian's uh, girlfriend for years and she wouldn't even leave town on Saturday or Sunday to go to Solvang because she was afraid her agent might call on Saturday Uh, with something that would come up on Monday and I'm like get real Um, that's no way to live so uh, that was a mistake to live in Florida look what happened Quinn Martin said come back and do this show I came back and did the show Uh, and as soon as the series was finished 
um, guess where I went to live again? I went back to Florida. And then I I want to be in the business, but I, still, I had a little boy at the time, a little son, and I didn't want my son to be influenced with Hollywood. So this interview yeah. will, of course, cut me off from any further business or work in California. Anyway, I wanted my son to Probably. grow up. <laughs> I wanted my son to grow up in beauty, real people, not the glitter, not the phony, not the drugs, not the alcohol. So I literally took my son. We went back to Florida, and we were living there. And um, I had to stay in the business, so I'd get a call from Quinn through the streets of San Francisco. So I'd fly from Florida to, to San Francisco's first streets. Uh, the Hawaiians, the movie that Tom Grice directed, who had directed me in a show out at um, MGM. Um, I can't think of the name of that show right now. An hour, uh, Kane's 100 at uh, MGM, and Tom Grice wanted me to go to Hawaii to play the. This part wasn't a great part, but it was a good little part, and it was a feature movie, and I got to go to Hawaii, but I'd fly from Florida. That's not how you really build a career. Uh, so I decided if I'm going to do this, I'm going to learn another thing that I'm fascinated with, and that's directing, that's writing. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, produced, and directed uh, a documentary film for the Lions Club, then I did one for the city of Boynton Beach, learning a craft that I didn't know, but I would learn to do it because I was going to do a feature. And then I'd go back. I did Air Force films for the United States Air Force in, in Orlando. I was learning a craft, another craft that I wanted to do, I, but I ended up starring in a couple independent films in Florida. Um, oh, gosh, Revenge is My Destiny, which was an independent film a producer did in Florida. Uh, so I'd go from acting, or I, I did uh, Cheerios commercials and all kinds of things in Florida. But it still was not staying in California, getting the benefit of being there and being able to be seen at a Hollywood party. Uh, so I did a film. I wrote, produced, and directed it. And I guess who I sent it to? I sent it to Quinn Martin. I said, uh, sir, would you please take a look at this film? I wrote, produced, and directed it. And I'd like to know what you think. Mm-hmm. And about a week later, I get a call. Uh, Quinn would like you to come back and direct a canon for us, which is the William Conrad big detective show, the big, you know, Bill Conrad. Um, so, holy cow, I'm just living in Florida again. I'm doing everything I shouldn't do. But I did one film back there that Quinn Martin wanted me to come out and start directing. So I went back to California and directed a show for him, and then I did another show for him, and then I went back to Florida, and then trying to think, I did a, another, I, that, I have to think about that, what happened in the interim, but then I get, I got an agent, because I kept doing these things, basically a lot on my own without an agent, and uh, which is next to impossible. I heard of. But I, I had an agent that, that I had started with, uh, and um, he said, you know, I've been called five times. I, I don't tell you about it because, you know, you're you're directing now. You're you're still doing guest stars on these shows. Um, that they'd like to see a general hospital, and I turn him down five times. He's not interested in doing a soap opera. Wow. And oh, I know what it was. I did a pilot for Lorimar at Warner Brothers. Again, I live in Florida, and yet enough people at Lorimar and CBS thought I should 
star in this pilot called The Wilds of 10,000 Islands. And I got to do that pilot in Florida. It took place in Florida on the West Coast. Wow. I was a a game kind of uh, fellow that rescued wild game and stuff, and I had a family who lived on an island. And Lorimar and CBS produced this pilot. I do this pilot. And then the top echelon at CBS changed, and they didn't know what to do with the pilot. So they just dumped it one night with no publicity, no anything whatsoever at all. They just wanted to get rid of it. And it actually won its time slot, but the people were not invested in it anymore. They didn't care because it was new ownership. So the pilot, we, we won our slot between ABC, CBS, and NBC, but nothing came of it, but one person happened to see it. And my my secretary had sent out cards to everybody in the industry, uh, watch The Wilds of 10,000 Island. Chris Robinson stars on this. and, and uh, um, So she sent it to everybody, and I remember one day she said, should I send the soap opera people? I said, no, I don't want to do soap. Well, what's soap? No, no, don't bother. And the next day she said, shouldn't I send this to the soap opera people? And I said, okay, send some cards. It was a little color postcard with my face on it, and the other side had the wilds of 10,000 islands. Be sure and watch this show. So guess who? Somebody at General Hospital got that little card, and Gloria Monti had just taken over General Hospital. It was ready to be canned. It was like last place. And most people don't know this, but General Hospital took in more income for all of ABC than all the other shows combined because they owned it. They didn't have to pay people that owned the other soaps. They owned Lock, Stock, and Barrel General Hospital. So every dime that came in was right straight to ABC. No family investors that started with the soap years ago. It was a strictly ABC project, and they didn't know who to get, so they got a very famous New York director, Gloria Monti, and they said, save this show at any cost. So she gets this card. She calls my agent. My agent doesn't even return the call. He finally talked to me about it, and I said, well, well, you know, Sharon really told me to, to, to mail these cards there if, if they're calling that many times. Should I go meet him? Okay, go meet him. So I went in, and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Wow. Um, because Gloria wanted to save the show. They were in last place. She had to save it. And, you know, my first day on the set, I'm like, okay, where's my stand-in? Uh, we don't have stand-ins on soap <laughs> You are, Oh, okay, all right. And you'd get there at 7 in the morning, you'd rehearse, then you'd have your first on-stage rehearsal at 9. You ended up spending 16 hours there doing General Hospital because Gloria was going to save that show. She stopped, she rehearsed, she she did things that had never been done in soap operas before because she was used to doing Playhouse 90. She was used to directing big projects in New York City. So she started changing, she revolutionized daytime drama, she really did. Um, and um, somehow, well, she had another character for Rick, she replaced the actor with me because they kept talking to me and they kept making an offer and Richard, my agent said, I don't know, how can you refuse this? I said, yeah, it is getting paid 52 weeks a year. Getting paid 52 weeks a year because there's vacation time. 
okay, I'll do it for a year. And um, well, that's so amazing. I, fifty-two um, weeks of the year. Pardon? That's amazing uh, that they were paying you for fifty-two weeks a year. Because, as I understand it, you also did uh, in that year. You also didn't you also do Gunsmoke and. Um, um, oh, I think I, there was a rest and trial, a couple episodes. Well, no, that that was not during uh, General Hospital. I did a couple other projects, but if you want to know some dirty, dirty, dirty stuff, I'll tell you some dirty, dirty, dirty stuff. <laughs> um, I, I did the show, and the best director, acting director I've ever worked with was Gloria Monti. She had more insight into the psychology and how people reacted to each other and I worked with John Frankenheimer. I've worked with some top, top directors doing features. And um, But the best actors director I ever had was Gloria Monty. So uh, suddenly I can't direct. I can't. Uh, I did a Beretta at Universal. I directed a Beretta. And suddenly if I take this, I, I'm guaranteed 52 weeks a year. They were going to give me three weeks vacation, but the other 49 I worked every week, three-day guarantee. I was working four and five days every week because she wanted to change that show and make it good. And I caught on, and I became number one in daytime TV as an actor. And Denise, my my uh, wife on the show, became number one. I'm almost wow. positive she became number one too. But that was before the General Hospital became number one. But that's she. I mean, she had me working. 50 pages a day. I mean... Um, a lot. But, uh, and it was easy for me because all you do is, you're the person, you're the human being. All you do is react, listen, and react. And whatever the motives, I mean, I learned that in acting, that it's, you basically just become the human being and you respond with action and reaction. That's all acting is, is truth. Um so I, I lost my directing career, but um, um, and I could I, well I uh, several months into the show I, I brought a dog in one day, and uh, one of the actresses on the show made a giant stink about me bringing a dog in to the dressing room. It was my big Mr. William Wolf. He was a German Shepherd, and uh, she raised a stink. She I mean. I was, how could anybody bring a dog in, into the studio? I won't tell you her name, uh, but mm-hmm. she was one of the leads on the show. And this huge confrontation, and I get a call from the producer. So I go in to see Gloria, and she says, I'm really sorry about all that. You know, we're, we're working you to death. How would you like a raise? I mean, she's going to give me a raise because somebody else complained about my dog. Um, I said, well, but we want to extend your contract another year. So I renegotiated. I think I'd been there six, seven, eight months. I don't remember the exact details. When I get a raise because my dog upset somebody else and they complained and bitched and moaned so much to Gloria uh, that she decided to reward me. Kind of funny things that happened in life. Amazing. So what would you say to someone, you know, uh, someone that's up and coming that wants to get into, whether they're an actor or whether they're um, somebody who wants to get into directing, 
um, et cetera. What would your advice be to somebody? You know, because I know a lot of people are very caught up with the, the whole social media and the internet, and you know, there's a lot of depersonalization when it comes to that. But you keep on mentioning that um, Gloria Monte was the best director, and that she was um, masterful with understanding human psychology. And so, obviously, that's on your radar, and I think that has a lot to do with your success. It's evident to me that that had a lot to do with your success because you were also intuitive, um, like instinctively, you know, sensitive to human psychology and aware of that. Well, um, it was a great experience. Um, not everything is perfect, though. I, I think she was the, the best acting director I've ever had. But I wouldn't trust her as a human being to take my garbage out. Would you like to know why I say that? Well, yeah, why do you say that? <laughs> because that's, people sometimes can be great in one aspect in one area and can be debunk in another area. They can have, they can put themselves and their goals above truth. Um, oh, me, um, you're, you're taking me back. But, I, I mean, I, I have to say it because we're getting into heavy heavy questions and heavy answers that have to follow. Um, when I was doing the show, I agreed to do the show. And I could do outside projects if I gave them six weeks' notice. And like two months or three months into the project, a director that I'd worked with in TV wanted me to do the lead bad guy in a Walt Disney film, motion picture now. Um, so I went to Gloria and said, Here, here's my six weeks' notice. I'd like, to, I'd like to get out to do that. And she took me to dinner, and she practically cried and said, You know, you, you just started. I, I know your contract says you can get out in six weeks to do this feature, but we just started with you, and things are exploding. And for me to do without you for six weeks, because it's on location in the West, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, please, please don't do that. I, I, I will make it up to you. I will. I, please, you, wow. you know, we're trying to save this show. Will you do it? I turned down a lead in a Walt Disney film, bad guy, not the, you know, the heavy, I mean, not the good, good guy. And I did it for her because I'd only been there so many months, and she, she begged, she pleaded. I did it. Several months after that, um, I said, um, you know, I did that favor for her, and then I asked her for one day, one day to do a commercial, I think in El Paso or something. Yeah, I think it was El Paso. Uh, and I'd have to leave for one day to do this commercial. Um, and she said, no, I can't do that. One day. I asked for one day to do a commercial, which anybody could have worked around daytime at that point. You know, one day you do a couple your scenes the day before or the day after. She didn't let me out for one day. Wow. I mean, I, 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 could no not, I could not believe it that I had given up a feature film uh, for my overall career. And then I asked for one day to go to El Paso to shoot a commercial. Um I just, you know, how can you do that? How can you put yourself above everything? So what what did you 
What what was your takeaway from that? Well, you know, I, I did her a giant favor. I gave her six weeks lost a feature film, and she would not even consider giving me one day away to go do a, a commercial. I just she was uh, all about her. Yeah, her and, and the show, which is her career, and yeah. she's saving the show and all of that. And and I helped her. She talked me into it. I literally probably shouldn't have, but I I said, I understand, Gloria, I understand. Six wow. weeks, I know what you're doing because you're working me to death. And, and I know I've given you the six weeks notice, but uh, 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 okay, I'll do it. And then when I asked for one day, just a few months later, one day? No. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, how can a human being do that? Yeah. So, so what did you do? Did you? I would imagine that you must have made some sort of decision in your in your inner being moving forward. If if faced with that type of a situation in the future, and I would imagine that probably did present itself again in the future. What, no, what, I, I, actually, actually, it never did. There were a couple times. Uh, to be very honest, there were a couple times that uh, other commercials came up. And I did them. Good. And but it, it's a day, you know. I just. Uh, it's a day, yeah. Um, I, I wow. you know, I, I could not believe that my whole career, you know. So General Hospital, I became. I'd walk in New York, and bus drivers would yell out to me, "Hey, Rick, what you doing in New York?" You know, it, it, it was a huge, very popular show. And I received a great deal of admiration, and I received money from it, and and it was a happy experience. But but, but to not be able to just go away for a day to do a commercial was that's, that's, uh, how could yeah, you beg and plead with somebody and then not respond on an equal, not equal yeah. one tenth like, of what you asked this person to do? Um, respond in time. And yet I'll still tell you, she like was the she was still the best director director I ever worked with. Yeah. It's a but, different uh, side of her. Yeah, clearly. Well, and that's why I asked you the question, you know, while you were doing General Hospital, because it was such a large role for so long, I noticed that uh, on your credits you played also in The Fugitive in 1963 while General Hospital was going on, and you also had, I think, Hogan's Heroes, and you, know, so you had a lot of other things that were going on that, you know, were in that same time period. And with such an intense schedule, how were you able to, uh, navigate that, but obviously you were able to because the evidence is, you know, the credits are there. Not an easy thing to do, but you did it. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, you know, that's that's life. You go on, you deal with things, and, and but. Um, well, we're anyway, at the top I, of the hour. Do you oh, have parting oh, words? I, I'm, for- I, I'm sorry. Sorry, you just said some things about some of the shows I did through General mm-hmm. Hospital. I think mm-hmm. those were done at different time periods, uh, rest and trial. And uh, oh, I just got handed a note of an emergency on the ranch here. So, but I, I, I can deal with it later, don't worry. Okay. Yeah, you did uh, The Fugitive in 63 and Perry Mason in 65, Hogan's Heroes in 69. Um that was one of the only comedy shows I ever did, Hogan's Heroes. Hogan's Heroes, really? That's yeah, but see, that, that was before General Hospital, way before General Hospital. I mean, yeah. I, I've led a blessed life. I mean, it's like, um, how can you live in Florida and keep having a career? I get called back to direct. I get called back to do 
12 o'clock high. I get called back to read for General Hospital, and I'm really just trying to direct. I had directed another picture in Florida, feature film, and was directing for Quinn, and and, and I'm still technically living in Florida. So, uh, And then now I'm living in Arizona, which has been kind of a culmination of... Uh, um, <laughs> I go the wrong place to really build a Hollywood career. Well, but I think you were, you, again, you were in integrity with yourself. That's where you find joy. That's where you feel best. And I think because your vibe is, you know, I always say your vibe attracts your tribe. So because you're in that high vibrating, vibrating place where you're in integrity with what it is that you want and living the way you want to live, that keeps, I think, a certain flow going, not just artistically, but just in all areas of your life. And I think you're a walking testament to that. So uh, it sounds like, uh, you know, to me, from an outsider looking in, that's very evident to me. So. Yeah, I guess I'm an outsider. But <laughs> I, I, I do what I love. I, I mean. You do what um, you love, absolutely. We, we have a we have a half mile in Oak Creek in uh, Arizona. And I can see uh, a mountain lion. I can see deer, beaver, uh-huh. otter, fox. Connected uh, with the nature. Bald eagles and hundreds of fruit trees and uh, uh, a beautiful, serene place that, that my kids will have when I go. My wife and my kids will benefit. And 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 I have, I have one son who's at Harvard right now getting a... A master's, a Ph.D. He won the J.F. Kennedy, uh, uh, oh, um, you know, the John F. Kennedy uh, scholarship for his Ph.D. He's getting a Ph.D. and a master's. One at Stanford and one at Harvard. He goes back and forth. And he, uh, this guy, has traveled all over the world, from Manchuria to China to uh, Spain, all over the world. And his favorite place in the whole world is right here on the ranch. On Oak Creek. Well, and what I'm hearing is that not only do you have professional success, but you also in your personal life. Again, I think because you are true to doing what you love and living in integrity and being whole, that again, you're successful not just financially and not just professionally, but also in your personal life. Your children are also successful. So um, we're at the top of the hour here. So I want to thank you for being on the Bottom Line Show Live, Chris. It's been a delight getting to know you and hear about your journey. And uh, thank you so much oh, you're, for you're being very on our welcome. show. Let me end one thing. I have made many mistakes in my life. <laughs> that is part of my life. That is part mm-hmm. of every life. No one is even near perfect. Yes. Well, thank you again for sharing oh, yourself you're very with welcome. us this hour. And uh, thank you for joining us at the Bottom Line, Bottom Line Show Live. Thank you, and and may the Lord bless and kiss you. Likewise, and peace and love always. Thanks much. Bye.